Dr. David White here again, CRIM 411, Crime Control Policy, Ferris State University. In this episode, we're reviewing Chapter 11 of our textbook, Sense and Nonsense, about crime, drugs, and communities uh, by Samuel Walker. And in this chapter, he titles it, Treat em, Taking the Treatment-Based Approaches, talking about policies related to rehabilitation. Punishments presented uh, in the United States as a form of deterrence, but uh, the emphasis uh, at the point of applying punishment is on prevention and preventing the individual, that is the criminal, from committing future acts. Rehabilitation, efforts in rehabilitation, another main goal here in Corrections, seeks to accomplish the same thing, only through rehabilitative rather than punitive approaches, that is reducing crime through rehabilitating correcting or treating offenders rather than punishing them. The rehabilitation approach is the cornerstone of traditional liberal crime uh, control policies, according to Walker. While conservatives tend to emphasize uh, more punitive approaches, liberals look more towards rehabilitation. All the same, the goal of both approaches is to reintegrate the criminal as a law-abiding citizen. Walker points to a specific uh, definition of rehabilitation as, quote, any planned intervention that reduces an offender's further criminal activity. That on page 282. He says the emphasis is on planned and intervention, right? And so two key words there. While people may think of rehabilitation as just counseling or something to that effect, rehabilitation encompasses a wide range of things, including probation and parole, uh, which have been used for a long time, as well as intensive supervision, boot camps, not really effective, but all the same fall into this group. Uh, curfew, mandatory drug testing, and other restrictions, as well as programs such as drug courts and reinvestment into community-based programs and strategies uh, where offenders can be deferred to as an alternative to incarceration. Walker, of course, points out, out uh, that trends in corrections have often led to sort of a fad-based approach whereby we see faith and not facts leading the way. He points out that most of it falls into the category of nonsense. From the title, Sense and Nonsense about Crime, Drugs, and Communities, most of these correctional strategies, he say, fall on the side of nonsense. As Walker points out, getting people through their most criminogenic years of life from about age 14 to 24, where they commit most of their offending, is most the most important thing. That is, uh, we must remember that age is highly correlated with offending, and uh, we have what criminologists call the age crime curve. Goal of rehabilitation, though, uh, for a matter of deterrence, is to get offenders to end or at least slow down their offending sooner rather than later. And so uh, getting them off of the wrong track and getting them back on the right track, as Walker cynically claims, uh, aging is really the best crime reduction strategy. First thing he points to uh, points towards here is uh, the idea that nothing works. And so controversy over the idea that when it comes to rehabilitation, maybe nothing works. Walker points to a report from a criminologist by the name of Robert Martinson, uh, who 40 years ago published a report that concluded with few exceptions most rehabilitation programs were doing a very poor job rehabilitating folks. Walker says the report, though, was exploited and twisted uh, to mean that nothing works. But in truth, Martinson never said that. 
And in fact, he found that about 48% of programs had some positive effects. He did find, however, that uh, the challenge of designing effective rehabilitation strategies is not easy. Walker points to a later review by Doris McKenzie, uh, who reported some treatment programs work with at least some offenders in some situations. If you didn't pick up on it, the key word there is some, right? Uh, some treatment programs, some offenders, some situations. One of uh, the important findings from Martinson's work was that few programs were properly evaluated and some evidence of evaluation was lacking in terms of failing to specify what treatment was actually provided, uh, improper research design, including the setup of control groups and so on and so forth, uh, and researchers drawing some questionable conclusions. All this points to the fact that the evaluation research must be done properly if we're really to understand the true effect of any type of uh, correctional strategy or program. Walker brings us back around to the prediction problem. Uh, using drug courts as an example, the, the referral to treatment-based strategy on the assumption that the offender is not a serious risk to the community and has a high likelihood of success in the alternative. The crucial question though is whether judges or correctional officials can officially, or can correctly rather, <laughs> Uh, identify uh, the more amendable uh, def defendants or offenders and sentence them to the right treatment program. That is putting the right person in the right program and probably at the right time. Right? Uh, when we look at traditional rehabilitation programs, Walker considers uh, traditional re rehabilitation programs as being probation, parole, and diversion. So probation as of 2011 there were 3.9 million people on probation in the U.S., uh, almost four times that of what it was in 1980. Uh, and so 25% of all convicted felons, uh, basically in 2009, sentenced to probation. Another 37% uh, were sentenced to uh, split sentences, uh, which includes some time behind bars, some jail time, and some probation. This makes probation... Uh, the most widely used rehabilitation program in the justice system. Probation, of course, keeps the offender from going to prison. Therefore, uh, they are able to maintain work and family and so forth. Uh, it's often used for first-time low-level offenders and therefore meets the goal Walker claims of proportionality, uh, being proportional to the crime. And the cost of probation are much cheaper, too, than putting someone behind bars. Walker points out, Probation costs taxpayers about $1,248 a year as of 2009, compared to about $28,835 a year for someone being in prison. The question here, though, is uh, probation more effective than incarceration? And are some kinds of probation more effective than others? Generally speaking, citing a RAND Corporation study, 65% of probationers are rearrested within 40 months with 51% of those being convicted on new offenses, including 18% uh, reconvicted on violent crimes. In short, most felons placed on probation fail. Uh, they do not become law-abiding citizens. As the number of people on probation has increased, the level of quality supervision has decreased in, in the probation concept, potentially, of course, jeopardizing even further its effectiveness. Parole, on the other hand, parole, uh, most offenders sentenced to prison were released early under some form of supervision, 
uh, but this percentage declined in recent years, according to Walker. Uh, this is parole, which is considered also a rehabilitation strategy because the effort here is to reintroduce the offender to the community through a supervised structure. Walker tells us as of 2011, nearly a million people basically on parole, 853,852. Uh, that's more than three times again than it was in uh, 1980. And so uh, the number of prisoners also released without conditional parole has actually increased as well from 17% to 33%. Conservatives don't like parole because it lets criminals out early, and liberals don't like it because decisions concerning who gets paroled and when are arbitrary and not based on good scientific foundations, i.e. predictions about who will reoffend and who will not. It does, however, offer prisoners uh, in prison, a reason for incentive to behave, uh, which gives prison officials some additional control over them while they're incarcerated and allows for sort of a safety valve when it comes to prison overcrowding, meaning that we can kind of manipulate the number of people on parole based on the availability of beds in prison. Walker points uh, to a 2009 report that concludes overall parole supervision has little effort uh, uh, or little effect on recidivism rates of released offenders. He points to the fact that relating that within three years of release, most parolees, that's 67.5%, were rearrested for a felony or serious misdemeanor. About 47% are convicted of new crimes. About 25% of those return to prison. Among parolees, one California study reported that 10,000 uh, parolees were homeless and only about 200 shelters served those. Uh, and 18,000 parolees had mental health issues, but there were only four mental health clinics available to them. Uh, so again, a population that is sort of underserved in a way uh, that might make the situation more volatile and make them less likely to be successful on their own. Walker poses the question whether intensive supervision actually changes the outcome of parole. Intensive probation supervision or intensive pro parole supervision, what he calls IPS, uh, was one of the new intermediate punishments designed to improve both probation and parole that sort of flourished in the 1990s. These programs, which are often used in combination with other intermediate sanctions, rest on the assumption that increasing the intensity of supervision will improve the results, that is, reduce recidivism. Actually, these programs have been around, Walker tells us, since the 1950s, uh, and they are not any more particularly effective than regular probation and parole. After one year, about 35% of IB, or IPS uh, probationers had been rearrested, uh, another 40% committing technical violation, only about 25% had no violations or secondary offenses. In the end, Walker concludes that probation and parole uh, have their proper place in the criminal justice system, but there's in fact no evidence that these programs are likely to make any uh, more effect in reducing crime. Walker moves us on then to diversion. Diversion programs are intended to divert people away from the criminal justice system uh, and more formal punishments. In doing so, it keeps the individuals from catching the formal label of criminal. That's why it's said to be founded sort of on this labeling theory concept. Hopefully you remember from previous coursework. Uh, in some of the diversions, the cases uh, the case is dismissed altogether after the defendant uh, successfully completes treatment of some type. In some cases, the diversion 
is pushed uh, before the police actually make an arrest. Again, uh, the emphasis here, though, is on treatment. These diversion programs keep offenders uh, of relatively minor offenses out of jails and prisons, and they provide treatment services such as drug, alcohol, anger management, and so forth. Uh, they also tend to reduce the cost on the criminal justice system by avoiding uh, the full prosecution and detention of the individual. Walker discusses some evaluation of diversions and shows the results are somewhat mixed. He also points to a major concern that diversion programs lead to what we call net widening. And net widening is a process by which more people are brought under some form of social control through the criminal justice system. This process occurs in diversion in that people or some people are diverted into various programs rather than their charges simply being dropped. If they were not in a diversion program, uh, the charge was just so weak that it would just be dropped. But instead, uh, given that they've been charged or they're potentially facing a charge, offering them this opportunity for diversion uh, to prevent trial, to prevent a, a formal decision being made on them uh, about their crime, uh, keeps their case alive. So uh, Walker claims early evaluations of diversion programs found they created substantial net widening. Uh, one such study in California with juveniles actually showed that it increased the number of juveniles in the system, even though juvenile arrest overall had declined by about half. And so the length of detentions also increased during the same time study. And so people then failing to meet the terms of their uh, diversion and basically pushing them then into a tougher sentence down the road. Uh, but do traditional diversion programs work at reducing reoffending and thereby reduce crime? The short answer here is no, they do not reduce serious crime. In fact, uh, the, there are serious questions about types of treatment or services that are actually provided. Uh, to diverted individuals, how effective those are, the interventions and, and treatments, and there is, of course, the issue of net widening. And so what Walker calls serious due process considerations, whereby we see people pushed into these programs coercively in an effort, again, as I described earlier, to avoid criminal penalties. Walker then moves us to a discussion of new intermediate punishments, and so intermediate punishments are designed to give judges options that fit between the extremes of prison or probation. These programs include boot camps, shock incarceration, intensive probation, parole supervision, home confinement, and electronic monitoring, i.e. ankle bracelets. The book tells us these programs are often used in various combinations and may frequently be paired with drug testing and so forth. Many of these Walker claims fall into that category of fads. Boot camps, for example, where young offenders are forced into a military-like boot camp arrangement uh, where it's very strict and it's meant to instill discipline, self-control through a short period of incarceration with rigorous physical, educational, and substance abuse prevention efforts, followed by a period of intensive supervision at home. These programs became popular in the 1980s and by 2000, Walker tells us there were 95 boot camps being operated around the country, nearly 12,751 inmates. However, evaluation research shows, um, and they've been subjected to some rigorous evaluations here, that they're no more effective than traditional sanctions. Boot camps that incorporated uh, treatment 
more treatment related services, more intensive sessions, uh, more intensive post-release control, uh, they were more effective than the others. But overall, boot camps, not effective. When we look at home confinement or electronic monitoring, the ankle bracelet, uh, home confinement uh, uh, and electronic monitoring are intended to provide a fairly strict sense of surveillance and control over the inmate while still allowing them to stay in their home, stay in their community, and therefore out of prison or jail. These programs are designed to reduce their reliance on actual incarceration, uh, which is more expensive and comes with other consequences. As of 1996, there were 13,800 and some change in probationers and another 8,491 parolees on electronic monitoring systems. Cost about $1,350 a year compared to $20,000 plus for prison. I think Walker had cited earlier $28,000 some change. Uh, these systems can provide both passive and active electronic monitoring. However, evaluations indicate that the uh, IPS, the home confinement electronic monitoring, are really no more effective at reducing crime uh, than conventional prison or probation programs. They are cheaper, but not necessarily more effective. Offenders in these programs have the same rearrest rate as those in conventional probation parole setups. This led to the claim that many of these intermediate punishment programs are more symbolic than substantive uh, in their changes. Another criticism is that these programs emphasize surveillance and control rather than rehabilitation. And so it moves them out of opportunities towards rehabilitation and really just into a process of uh, surveillance and control. Interestingly, uh, one study showed that about a third of people who were eligible for intensive supervision opted instead to stay in prison. Uh, that should tell us something, right? Is that uh, prisoners would rather just do their time and be done than to have to keep up with the electronic monitoring. Um, the conservative alternative here, Walker takes up the next uh, category here, faith-based treatment. Faith-based uh, groups have long been part of the criminal justice practice, especially as part of corrections. As pointed out in Module 1, the foundation of the modern penal system, often associated with the Quakers, uh, a religious group that called for prison reform in the 1700s. These faith-based groups got a boost in 2001 when President Bush created the Office of Faith-Based and Community Initiatives. Faith-based treatment involves several different kinds of programs incorporating religious beliefs. Uh, the most general kind of faith-based program uh, is derived from uh, what he defines here as organic religion. This means that uh, religion is an integral part of the person's life and independent of criminal behaviors. So the second category here, faith-based groups uh, with intentional religion, uh, where there's a religious component uh, specifically introduced to participants in the program with the specific intent of helping them overcome their, uh, their issue, their drug problem, whatever it may be. Um, and with the intentional religions component though, it's a little bit confusing here. Uh, there are some that directly require a religious element, like going to chapel, those sort of things. And then there are some that really don't. And so it's really just a ministry to them to try to help these folks. Uh, it is very faith-based, but at the same time, there's not necessarily a direct religious uh, requirement made of the participant. And so are they effective? 
Walker focuses on intentional programs that directly introduce religion or religious viewpoints. His conclusion is there's little persuasive evidence that faith-based treatment programs are any more or less effective in reducing crime than secular treatment programs. Uh, this issue is successful. Uh, this issue of success, rather, uh, he returns uh, to the fact that uh, we have to look at the fact that some programs work for some people at some times. And is it the offender's participation in the program, or is it more or less their general commitment to their religious beliefs that makes the program successful for some people? He says that's kind of hard to untangle. He looks at drug courts, and he brings drug courts up several locations here uh, in the book, and you can tell that he likes drug courts. Uh, he refers to them as promising. And so uh, he says, quote, the most promising form of treatment to emerge in recent years involves drug courts, that on page 305. This program is a form of diversion that focuses on treatment rather than full prosecution. Some of the claims made on, by drug court advocates uh, should immediately put us on alert, he says, because they seem too good. Uh, the, program, the programs enjoy broad support. Walker tells us as of 2009, there were 2,300 drug courts across the country, including 459 juvenile drug courts. Drug courts specialize criminal court to handle substance abuse cases through a comprehensive program treatment, supervision, and alternative sanctions. But do they work? Walker's critique of the literature demonstrates the programs hold promise. Uh, they reflect that drug court participants are less likely to fail drug tests at follow-ups at 18 months out. Uh, they experience less family conflict, lower self-reported involvement in criminal activity. Additionally, he says the programs return about $2 of uh, return on every $1 spent in an investment. Others suggest uh, cost savings could be greater, um, as much as $3.36 for every dollar spent. Leads uh, Walker to claim the carefully designed, well-managed drug courts are promising treatment program that has demonstrated their effectiveness at reducing crime. He points out that the judge's involvement is particularly important. He talks about that in another chapter, but uh, again, the role that the judge plays is very important there to their success. Talking new directions and conclusions here, Walker sort of closes things by talking about uh, evidence-based practices and policies in corrections. He says that there's a consensus among experts and professionals concerning eight basic principles of evidence-based policy making. So I'll just enumerate these out very quickly here. Assessing actuarial risk and needs, enhancing intrinsic motivation, target interventions, skills training with directed practice, increase positive reinforcement, engage ongoing support for natural communities, measure relevant processes and practices, and provide uh, measurement feedback. In the end, Walker claims the evidence on rehabilitation, with one notable exception being drug courts, does not look too promising. So again, just a need to continue to apply uh, evidence-based approaches to understand what works in the idea of rehabilitation. Overall, thus far, not a lot of good evidence of support. It ends there, so uh, again, I hope you uh, uh, enjoy taking the opportunity to listen to this on the go rather than maybe reading it, but I, all the same, I encourage you to pick up the text and give it a look.
As always, if you have questions, feel free to email them to me.